From the perspective of me recording this, I haven't actually done my Game of the Year thing for 2018 yet. But from the perspective of me recording this, this game probably is going to win. This is a really, really, really good game. Easily, not just in the art category, but probably in my overall top games of all time. With only a couple of irritations throughout the entire work. I really, really enjoyed this game a lot. Uh, for this playthrough, I actually did a New Game Plus playthrough of my existing one, which obviously worked very well. <sighs> Where do I even begin? Let's start by talking about something that I think is the most important thing to talk about in this game, and that's the directing. The, director, uh, the directing style was to use basically a singular, unbroken shot throughout the whole work. Now, what's funny is, is as I was playing it, that's the question I got most when I was going through the premiere run. People were like, hey, what do you think of the directing? What do you think of the camera? What do you think of the directing? What do you think of the camera? I guess this was part of the marketing spiel. I kind of missed out on that. But I do think it was a very good move. There's no fades to black, and there's no sudden jerks, jerks away. And the overall approach is as if someone is actually walking around with a camera following around the events of the entire game. It works very well, in my opinion. There's a couple of things that you are limited if you do something like that. You know, there's certain types of transitions or perspectives that you just can't do. And the camera can basically never leave Kratos. So that does limit your storytelling and narrative perspective. But... I think they do this to great effect. It's probably worth noting and pointing out that this game is simultaneously far more restricted and far more open than most previous God of War games. I say more restrictive because in game terms, the real estate, er real estate area that we can actually go to is much, much more confined. I don't want to say it's smaller because this is a much larger game than the previous God of Wars. But I mean, you don't go from you know, roads to the island to, you know, all that stuff. You don't do that thing. Instead, everything is confined within a relatively known area, which you can traverse between thanks to the portals and blah, blah, blah. But even going through a portal still follows the camera properly. It also means that we have two main characters in this game, which I think was a unique uh, idea. As I'm going to make clear as we go forward here, I think that Atreus is arguably the main character of this game. But Kratos himself is the perspective character of the game. And I think that that makes a wonderful uh, comparison, parallel, dichotomy. The, the contrast and difference between these two things really helps the narrative flow substantially. But I'm supposed to be talking about gameplay. I do have to mention, though, the motion capture and the voice acting are really good in this game. They deserve separate props by themselves. In fact, I'm going to go ahead and be honest with you guys. When I first heard that people wanted me to do rumination on this game, I didn't want to. Not because it's not a good game and not because I didn't want to replay it, but because this is one of those games that I like to call bad for ruminations. Because I'm just going to be discussing ideas, concepts, characters, and whatnot as we go through this, but this is a detail game. I like to call this brushstroke theory. This is th hundreds upon hundreds of brushstrokes, all making an extremely detailed and well-crafted picture. I suppose I should explain that. So for those of you who don't know what I mean, brushstroke theory in brief. Here, I'll use my pen here. Let's assume for a moment I want to draw or paint a river. Uh, I could do that in one brushstroke. There we go. There's a river. But anyone looking at that on the canvas is just going to be like, well, that, that looks like crap. The more brushstrokes, the more precision you use in these brushstrokes, and both are important. You can't just go all willy-nilly. But the more brushstrokes you use, the more details you add, the more fleshed out and detailed and well-designed that river looks, right? That's brushstroke theory. 
because it's all about the stuff that most players or viewers or readers or whatever are probably never even going to notice, at least not consciously. But they will recognize it, and it will add to the work for them. It's like good sound design. Good sound design is when you don't notice it. Anywho, <clears throat> probably my favorite example of this by far, just really quick to skip ahead, is that Kratos himself you know, has been, is, throughout the entirety of the game, someone who just likes to keep to himself, right? He doesn't say much. Atreus actually provides the majority of the dialogue for the entirety of, like, say, the first half of the entire game. But the moment when Atreus fully gets sick and he has to take him to Freya, and Kratos is just losing it. He doesn't, he doesn't sit there saying, I'm very worried about my son. Instead, he's just, can't quite sit still and there's a lot of very nice little details just like that which brings me to my next point i know I'm, this is technically my gameplay section but i gotta talk about these in order because this was the other thing that really impressed me about this game this is one of the best expositions i've ever seen in a game and i know that's a weird thing to comment on but let me explain what i mean exposition of course is when you get necessary information from in character that is the universe the setting the characters the plot to out of character you guys the viewers the players the readers now the usual, there's hundreds of different ways to do this, but they all boil down to the same basic concepts. You can flat out say, this is a thing. You can weave it into the narrative while still saying, this is a thing. For example, if you have someone who doesn't know that, who has to, has to be explained to, or it's on a news report that's getting really popular in, uh, in films in the last, like, five years. Or, uh, you know, some other method where basically someone is still saying, this is a thing, but they're saying it in character. Uh, you can do really bad exposition, which is, as you know, I've barked on about that enough. And then you could do stuff where, what I like to call implied exposition. Rather than saying, this is a thing, well, I, of course, I didn't use a literal example, so I can't use that, but um, let's say I like almonds, okay? I know, weird, hear me out, just hear me out, okay? So I can say, in so pretend I'm a character in a video game. I say, man, I love almonds, and I start eating some almonds, right? So that would be the first form. The second form would be um, a scene from another person who says, well, you know how much Lore loves almonds, right? The third way, the as-you-know way, would be if someone walked up to me and said, hey, Lore, you know, as you know, you really like almonds, so I got you some. Oh, thanks. The, for the final way of exposition, which is what this game does all over the place, is imagine if I'm just sitting here and... Someone pops in and is like, hey, and I look up, and they toss me a jar of, of almonds. And I look at it, and I see that it's almonds, and I just get this grin on my face, and I'm like, oh, thanks. And they're like, yeah, no problem. Bam! Exposition done. That's good exposition right there. It's natural, it makes sense in character, and it treats us like we have a damn brain. Excuse me for saying that, but one of the things that pisses me off most about bad exposition is bad exposition is all about treating the viewer, reader, player as if they do not have a brain. This game treated me like I had a brain in the way that it very naturally and innately wove everything into the consequences of the game and into the interactions of the characters and how they talked with each other, how they reacted to each other. All of that stuff was brilliant. Now, let's talk about the gameplay, the actual gameplay for a second, because I swear i got to talk about the gameplay. But I want to take a quick aside really quick. I know that, you know, I'm, I'm a tiny little corner of the internet and very few people actually watch my videos, and I understand that. But I, I almost wish I had the kind of influence and power to be able to reach out to the people who made this game. 
just to shake their hands. They made a truly phenomenal game. And I wish I could just gush at them, you know? I was like, God, you, you really, really made this work, and it's awesome. And I just, I wish they could know that, you know? Anyways, I'm sorry, that's a weird thing to comment on. It was just something that was occurring to me as I was playing through this game, as I was streaming it for the first time, even. So, let's talk about the equipment side of things. Now, the equipment is a little bit more RPG-y, uh, actual stats which affect your combat prowess, your, your defense, your HP, all that fun stuff. And I don't mind this. I can't say that it's the best thing ever, but it's it's basically an RPG mechanic tacked on to another game rather than this being an RPG proper. I'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing, I'm just, just uh, discussing it. One of the things I found most interesting, though, is a lot of the times I would go for a specific set that augmented a specific playstyle rather than trying to get something that just had the best stats or looked coolest. And I think this is one of the reasons why the equipment system actually works well for me, because you can actually tailor it to how you want to play the game. And as ever, I like to say options are a good thing. There are multiple ways of playing this game. You can play this basically fully buffing Atreus. I mean, Lord knows by the end of the game he's a death machine in his own right. Uh, you could play this kind of a ranged perspective, uh, getting certain talents and abilities that specifically uh, are, are better if you're not there. You can get things that make your actual your melee abilities better, your rage better, all sorts of stuff like that. Personally, I kind of went with a thing which improved his lightning uh, arrows and, and abilities, the raven call thing especially. Whereas I would go ahead and use my axe as my primary weapon, toss it at someone so it's damaging them. So the the ravens are damaging them, the axe is damaging them, and then I go in and melee at the same time. Basically trying to stagger, or I should say stack, excuse me, the opposite of staggering. Stack the amount of damage I was doing at one time in order to bring something down as quickly as possible. And, and that was just fun for me, and I enjoyed that. But you could flip it around, and that's good. I also love the axe in general, by the way. As I've said before, that axe is a wonderful utility weapon. Now, we don't really see this in the game other than for puzzle-solving purposes, but it is also a really nice tool for puzzle-solving purposes. In fact, I just want to give tremendous praise for the puzzle-solving in general in this game. The fact that we slowly... I mean, it's a Zelda game. Let's just call it what it is. It's a Zelda game. And that's praise. That's, that's a good thing. When you slowly increase your toolkit, and as your toolkit expands, you can do more, reach more, and interact with more. This allows things to be unlocked bit by bit, uh, allows you to progress through a dungeon. In many cases, you, you will actually see circumstances that you can't interact with earlier as, as a way to remember them. And then you get to a point where it's like, aha, I now have this ability. I can go break the red crystals, for example, because I got lightning now, you know, stuff like that. It's very well designed, and at very few points in this game do I feel any kind of frustration for being lost or stuck or feeling stupid. For the most part, it was all good stuff. I was going through this game this time through, and I think I made this comparison during my initial stream as well. In many ways, the structure of the level design specifically reminds me a lot of the Metroids. Again, praise. Because of the whole slowly mapping out the world, remembering where things are, going back to rehash things, you know, increasing toolkit to increase where you can go, that kind of a thing. I don't think it's quite in the same direction, but I wouldn't be surprised if that type of level design was something that was being kept in mind when designing and mapping out most of the directions in which the areas go through, and what kind of obstacles you'll see and where, you know, that kind of a thing. The combat itself is fun, uh, very tight for the most part. I do... 
well, I'll talk more about some of the specifics later because, believe it or not, it's actually relevant to story. But I do very much enjoy the completely different playstyle between the axe and the blades. That's awesome. Um, and, of course, I also love how the axe is, by and large, even though it, you'd think it'd be the big, clumsy weapon, is actually far more precise. Whereas the blades are far more the whatever happens to be near me is getting helicoptered, you know? <laughs> The other thing to talk about gameplay-wise is, of course, Atreus, but I want to save that for a moment. But I do want to mention one other thing before I forget, and that is the difficulty settings. I actually enjoyed playing this on a high, harder difficulty. I ended up not for the stream for time reasons, and I couldn't really for this one. But I did spend some time in some areas that I enjoyed, Alfheim in particular. I just cranked the difficulty up for fun, because I actually enjoyed that, because I actually enjoyed the increased challenge from the enemies and the fact that it was a lot more punishing. At no point did I actually feel legitimately frustrated by the increased difficulty. It just felt like I had to basically spend more time memorizing tells and whatnot. A very Dark Souls-y kind of a thing, as I know some people would call it. Although I hate to use that because apparently there's some misuse of that terminology. So instead I will just say that it reminded me a lot of Mega Man in a good way, and we'll move on. The setting in many ways felt like a bit of a tale more than an actual story. It isn't. But you, there's a lot of magic going around in this game. And it's very easy, and I myself had this thought several times, to think that this is an inconsistent setting. The problem is, a lot of effort is actually made in trying to make sure that it is, in fact, consistent. That the whole way through is basically one long, contiguous element. You know, none of the magic that the dwarves use, for example, is inconsistent. Even though they can get to the point where a guy literally just looks at your axe, taps it once with his hammer, and says, okay, that's good. That's the kind of thing that would normally qualify under magic rather than something a little bit more self-consistent. Please forgive me. I'm actually in a lot of pain right now. This is just an ibuprofen. And I got a lot to talk about. So, I do like the idea of the Age of Mythology thing. For those of you who don't actually know what I'm talking about, Age of Mythology is a game in which uh, Greek, Egyptian, and Norse myth and a little bit of Roman, are all kind of mixed together in the same world. Chinese, too, actually. And it all fits together. It all makes sense together. Mostly because of the fact that they kind of limit certain gods' powers to be regional rather than global. In other words, rather than being the god of the, you know, earth, you're the god of this region, this land, kind of making them a little bit more like Loa. I really enjoyed the approach and presentation of that. And I think that's kind of what we've got going on here as well. It's mentioned that the Greek gods certainly had certain large-scale powers, and of course, that several of these Greek gods and their powers and the destruction of those powers caused significant ramification for the other gods. But it's not like the sun went away completely, right? It's just the sun stopped working correctly because of the issues that were done down in Greek, right? I mean, this makes sense in its own right. So in other words, the idea is that these gods are aware of each other and share similar concepts, they're not fully regional like they were in Age of Mythology, but it's more like a shared uh, congruence with each other. Now, that being stated, I've heard some people argue that basically that this is a planar situation, that the Greek mythos is its own plane of existence rather than you know being by Sparta or in the Greek Isles or anything like that, and that the Norse plane of existence is a completely separate area rather than being on the same planet. I'm not sure that would actually work as well. And Lord knows we see an example of multiple planes of existence in both games, since we had, you know, uh, 
uh, the underworld. I couldn't think of the proper name. I still can't think of the proper name. Uh, you know, Hades' realm. And we see several other examples of multiple layers of existence back in the Greek area. And we actually go to multiple here as well. So that would make sense too. Make up your own mind on that one. I'm not, sh I'm not sure how I think of that, but I kind of like the, the more down-to-earth age of mythology method of this just being another physical place on the same planet. Now, <coughs> oh, oh, excuse me. I also like that we know that other mythos exist. First of all, we know the developers were thinking about going in the direction of Egyptian, which would be awesome. But we see several signs of other mythologies as well as we learn about more of the setting and the world, and Mimir talks about other aspects of it, which implies that, again, it's not just Norse and Greek. It's quite a few different things that gel together. Again, different planes of existence, different regions, not sure. I suppose we should talk about the yellow thing. This is probably your last chance to avoid spoilers, 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 spoilers. As we find out in this game, it turns out that our mother, that is to say Atreus's late mother, La Fay, God, um, left, she was a seer, and so she saw the future, and so she actually went out of her way to leave a trail of yellow stuff that you can interact with, all freaking over the place, so that we would always know where to go. Now, that's neat in its own right. A little bit ludicrous, if I'm being completely honest. I tend to be someone who thinks in the realm of the believable, and someone who could literally go and predict every step someone's going to go on in a journey across multiple realms is just... That's leaning more towards the tale side of things for me than the story side of things. It's a neat touch, and it's it's a nice way to tie in gameplay and story to be, seg uh, to me, to be integrated rather than segregated. But I'm not sure. What do you guys think of that? Now... The pace of this game is really, really nice. I was reminded ex excessively of God of War 2's pacing. For those of you not aware, God of War 2 is a game I, I hold in extremely high esteem as one of the better games uh, ever, up in the, the higher echelons of the art category, as I like to call it, uh, or the top 100 if you prefer, even though it's probably like 300 at this point. But I mention that because God of War 2 and God of War 4... Oh, by the way, I'm going to re regularly refer to this as God of War 4 because it, that's what it is, and I don't feel like calling it God of War because I hate that. If there was one complaint I have about this game, it's the fact that it's called God of War. No. <laughs> it's God of War 4. Moving on. <clears throat> God of War 4's pacing mimics God of War 2's in many ways. The idea is, okay, so you have some kind of event. Now, that event can be bombastic, or it can be personal, but it's one of the two. After the event, you usually have an exploration section. Running around, puzzle solving, getting loot, etc. Then you usually have something big happen. Usually combat. Chakong, oh god, and now we have to fight this giant boss. And the music swells, and then we bring the giant down. Whew, or the troll, actually, in this game. Okay, we did it. And then there's usually another event. Which then leads to another exploration, and so forth and so on. The pattern isn't perfect, of course, and there's quite a few deliberate interruptions, usually done for narrative effect, which is good. One of the best things you can do once you've established a narrative pattern is to deliberately break it for the intent of making a point and purpose. And Baldur himself is probably one of the best examples of someone who breaks narrative flow repeatedly as basically the recurring villain of the game, so that makes sense. So first part of the game is actually really simple. We get a brief introduction to Kratos and how horrible of a person he kind of is obviously better than he used to be. He's obviously far more constrained. But we also see that Kratos is someone who doesn't socialize, doesn't talk, doesn't interact, insults people regularly, and is generally surly and violent. 
Now, he is nowhere near the bloodthirsty monster that he used to be. This is obviously an aged Kratos. But you can see how the past, plus his own issues, plus the recent loss of his wife, has left an extremely significant series of scars on him. Atreus, of course, has his own issues, but he's adapting to them in a completely different way. In many ways, Kratos and Atreus are almost nothing like each other, except for the fact that they kind of are at the same time. The only real difference, and I know this is going to sound weird, in my, but in my opinion, between Kratos and Atreus is experience and age. Atreus can get just as bloodthirsty and violent and surly and rude and mean under the right circumstances. And Kratos does legitimately like helping people and forming bonds with people. It's just both of them do it in different ways. It's kind of like, this is going to sound like a weird parallel, it's kind of like me and my sister. She and I think extremely differently, and we have such completely different thought patterns that oftentimes we can't even understand each other. But we usually tend to do so in the same direction. In other words, we tend to end up at the same place, kind of like... Kratos and Atreus. So, the first chunk of the game is expository gold, like I said, the fourth type of exposition, between Kratos and Atreus and learning how they are, and teaching Atreus how to hunt, how to survive, how to fight. And this is also the beginnings of Atreus's, uh, for lack of a better way to put it, his introduction as a gameplay element. Now, early on, he's just there to peck the enemies with a few bows. And I remember distinctly the first time I played this, I thought, well, that's it? That's useless! He doesn't even do anything! And I started kind of ignoring Atreus, funnily enough. In gameplay, obviously not in story. And everything kind of follows the same basic pattern until we get to the point where Baldur shows up. Now, before I, before I talk about that, though. So, Atreus is young, very intelligent, picks up on things very quickly. He has a sharpness to him, a perceptiveness to him, which is it, it inspires wisdom beyond his years. Probably something he got from his mother. And he also is someone who clearly has a lot of baggage, not just because of his mother's death, but more specifically because of his lack of relationship with his father. Note that in the beginning, Kratos basically treats him as... There's no nicer way to put this, as a burden. And again... Atreus himself has, has apparently only ever really dealt with that, barely has any relationship with this man. Now, to be clear, I do not think Kratos sees Atreus as a burden. I don't. To the contrary, I think Kratos loves his son a great deal and has no idea how to express that. So I'm not saying, I mean, Kratos is a bad father, but he's not a horrible father, if you catch me. We also, I, I hate to skip ahead a little bit here, but one of the things I love about this game is how Atreus gets more and more useful the further that you go into the game. Atreus is probably the most Metroid thing in this game, and I know that sounds like a weird thing, but what I mean by that is Atreus starts off being able to poke a few arrows at people. Later on, he gets the ability to taunt, he gets the ability to stun enemies, per, you know, stun lock them, he gains the ability to stun them with his arrows, he gains the ability to AoE with his arrows, he gains the ability to burn things... Right? I mean, he gains all these elemental powers, and, and it's not just combat usefulness, but also utility usefulness as well. And by expanding his toolkit so extensively, Atreus becomes arguably one of the better aspects of the combat, because you still have control over him. That's the key thing. This never dives into escort mission territory. Atreus is not some helpless NPC you're trying to get from point A to point B. He is an active member of the party. Just because the camera's behind Kratos, and because the movement is of Kratos, 
you still control Atreus. And that was a brilliant and inspired decision, in my opinion. By making him an, 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 a critical part of the team, it helps the gamers who don't care about story as much to care about Atreus because he's helping them play the game better. Right? Now, this is uh, then exemplified. The, the, the relationship between Kratos and Atreus is exemplified when Baldur shows up. And the first thing that Kratos says is, go down there. And, and there's this nice little bit. There's so much wonderful foreshadowing. Like I said, brushstrokes. I thought you told me never to go down there, because that's where the blades are. No, no, go down there. Hide. And he goes and talks to Baldur. Now, playing this for the second time was actually very interesting, because as I know, in the future, first of all, that's Baldur. Didn't know that for quite a while the first time through. But second of all, the most interesting thing was his dialogue is really specific. He mentions how, you know, I, I, I know who you are, I know what you are, I know what you've done. You fool, I'm looking for the second one, blah, blah, blah. This whole time, Baldur thinks he's a giant. Baldur has no idea about the Greek thing, or if he does, he doesn't care. But everything he says and acts is relevant if you consider this as if he is presuming that he is a giant. And Kratos is a giant person who has a massive muscle, so you can kind of see why he would think that. But for the viewer, for the player playing it for the first time, you think he's talking about the Greek thing. Because obviously we know who Kratos is. And as mentioned before, this is a direct sequel to God of War 3, not a reboot, as it was hinted at during the, the first times when this game was first uh, showcased. That's awesome. Again, good writing. So then we fight Baldur. That's cool. This is the introduction of the threat. And once again, once we have the threat, we immediately go into exploration we find out that the very tree that their mother requested them in order to chop down for her funeral pile, funeral pyre, is, the, is one of the ones that was maintaining this, the magical barrier on the area. In other words, she has now effectively forced them to start the journey. There's a lot of that. <laughs> so the exploration phase begins. I want to talk about Brock and Sindri next, because they're awesome. I, if anybody who remembers, remembers I just kept gushing over both characters. It's hard to properly describe these type of characters, because the way I like to think of them is Brock and Sindri are both cliches done well. As I've said so many times, a cliche is not in and of itself a bad thing. It is how you execute it and how it fits within the rest of the work that really matters. Brock is the surly, cantankerous guy who's got a heart of gold and really cares about people. I mean, there's a scene later on where once he finds out that something's up with Atreus, he's like, I got your back. What do you need to do? I'll follow you. I can do stuff. I can hurt stuff. I'm... Let me at him. You know, he's obviously eager to help. And Kratos, who by that point of the game has started to grow a little bit, eh, it's a wrong word, but I'll talk about him in a second. Kratos is like, no. I mean, thank you. I appreciate it, but you've already done enough help. You are very helpful. Thank you. He's like, okay, okay. I got this. You know. And apparently his skin's that way because of silver? Funnily enough, that's a real thing. Sindri, of course, is the hypochondriac. Oh, God, no, that's gross. I don't want to touch it. Did you know? And what's funny, Sindri's reason for being a hypochondriac makes a lot of sense. Hypochondriac's the wrong word. I'm sorry, I just realized that. Uh, so let's call him squeamish. The reason for Sindri being squeamish makes perfect sense. He knows what bacteria are. Let's be 100% honest, most of us real-life humans try very hard not to think about bacteria, because the moment we do, I mean, think about it, right? You're picturing it? Yeah, no, it's very easy to just go, Bleh! So, <laughs> Sindri, of course, has that perspective on him. Both of them are, again, cliched. 
Both of them even have a slowly making up with each other kind of a story arc prompted by Atreus. We'll talk about that moment later. And both of them help to upgrade your weapons and equipment. So again, once again, they take awesome characters and weave them into gameplay so that even someone who doesn't care as much about story is still going to have a, re a connection with these characters because they're the ones responsible for upgrading your gear and make, giving you the rune, giving you access to teleportals, all that stuff, all the gameplay side of things. So it's good. Now, I there's so many details I'm skipping over, more or less on purpose. Again, brushstrokes. Alfheim is gorgeous. Helheim is amazing. Like, the way that they visually distinguish the realms is awesome. I really, really, really want to praise the art development team and art directorial team and the actual renderers and artists who crafted each of the different realms. They looked different. They feel different. Most of the puzzles function differently. Most of the combat functions differently. It's all gold across the, the word, and I just want to comment on that really quick. There's also a really cool scene uh, where... Kratos goes in and ends up nearly falling in for this, you know, this siren's call in a vision. And it's only a few seconds. Again, our camera sticks with Kratos. But as soon as we come out of the vision, there's corpses all over the place. Because he'd been waiting for hours for us to come out of that vision. See, that's one of the, the advantages of a limited narrative viewpoint. You can do things with it that imply more than what you're actually seeing. Like if the camera went to the right and then turned to the left and all of a sudden, you know, things have noticeably changed and altered, we, the audience, can then understand that this is a significant a aspect that has changed in character. Or the director's just playing with us, or it's a mind game. But you know what? You get my point. This is probably a good time to talk about the water elements. We get into a boat at several points in this game and, and row at several points in this game. When I first played this game, I wasn't really sure at first of what the point was of rowing to point A to point B. It's not very engaging. There's not a lot to do. Except listen. It's a way... I do approve of this, although I wish there's a way to skip it, because the lack of fast travel is one of my complaints in this game. But it is a way to get storytelling. Because Kratos and Atreus talk during those trips. They talk about their past, they talk about stories, and we get characterization for both throughout. This, of course, eventually kind of peters out to the point where Kratos and Atreus aren't really doing all that well together. But then we go and find some guy named Mimir. I like Mimir too, by the way. Now, Mimir is a perfect puzzle piece for this game, because Mimir is basically the, the god of lore, or at least he thinks he is. He's one of my subordinates. And he likes to talk about things in character, in-universe, from an in-universe perspective. He is a way for us to get a lot of information that we otherwise wouldn't. Information about Thor, information about Odin, information about the giants, all of the setting aspects of the game that otherwise, let's be honest, it would be difficult to smoothly exposit. So this would then be an example of the, I believe, the second type of exposition, where someone in character is explaining to someone else in character something that the second character doesn't know. Mimir then is thus a, a mouthpiece character. This works very well, but the best part is this ties back into that water thing I was talking about. Because on so many of those river trips now, and, and water trips, it is now Mimir who was the one who was talking, usually to Atreus, while Kratos is just being his usual quiet, surly stealth. And Atreus is, of course, a talkative person, and Mimir is a talkative person, so now, at this point, we suddenly have a lot more general conversation 
in general in the game as the two of them constantly discuss things with each other, whereas Kratos actually kind of goes more quiet at about this point in the game. This, of course, leads naturally to a section where we have to go through a fairly lengthy puzzle section. Again, like I said, event, uh, exploration, big, event, exploration, big. And, of course, the big at the end of this exploration is fighting Modi and Magni, which I'm probably pronouncing wrong. I want to talk about them very briefly, because we don't see Odin this entire game, not once. We get a lot of exposition about him, but all of that exposition is necessarily slanted. Mimir obviously has plenty of reason to hate Odin, and so does Freya, for that matter. So we can't say with total certainty that everything that we are told is accurate. Remember, this is all in-character stuff, and in-characters, well, can either lie or be slanted or be misinformed. That being said, I think the introduction of these two sons was an excellent narrative tool, in addition to the fact that it's a really fun boss fight. Because now, it's, first of all, it's a great boss fight, where by this point in the game, Atreus has gotten significantly stronger and more useful in gameplay. So it helps to challenge you as to, you know, fighting as both of them at the same time. This is also when Atreus really starts to lose it. We'll talk about that in a second. But either way, it's a great boss fight. But what's more important is both of these people are... Children of aristocrats is what I like to call this. You probably know what I mean. I am fortunate to have only known a couple of people like this in real life in person. But it's the kind of person who was born with a silver spoon in their mouth. Who had everything they ever wanted and had everything just given to them. To the point where they just sort of assumed that that's natural. That that's normal. And usually, usually especially in fiction, aristocratic children will be the kind of children who are snobby, selfish, rude, and just ter terrible people in general. And that's Magni and Modi. Now I point that out because they are effectively here under, you know, Thor and thus Odin's orders. Thus we get the idea that these two, for lack of a better way to put it, have been allowed to be just as selfish, spoiled, and petulant as they are portrayed. Which means those who are in charge of them, Thor and Odin, are equally you know, evil and corrupt and rotten. This is actually another excellent aspect of storytelling that this game does, because one of the... there's several ways to establish a character. One is to show them, one is to, to not show them, and one is to talk about them. And I know that sounds like a weird way to put that, but sometimes a fictional work will weave together not showing and talking about as a way to build up a character without actually having them have screen time. And this is what's happening with Odin throughout pretty much the entire game. Uh, Thor as well. Thor is built up to be this monstrous doom. He's basically the doom guy of this particular version of Norse mythology. And <laughs> not said, really. In fact, it could be very strongly argued that by everything we learn about Thor, he is, in fact, exactly like Kratos was back in the day. The unstoppable doom guy who had a very short temper and was abs had absolutely no qualms whatsoever about destroying and killing everything in his path, if for whatever reason he had any reason to do so. Just because it was there, or because it was useful to him, or because it would accomplish his goals, or whatever. He doesn't need a big reason. They're there. They're in killing distance. What? So thus, Thor serves as a bit of a parallel to, uh, excuse me, to Kratos himself, but that would make Odin the parallel to Zeus. Now, the Zeus back in God of War 1 through 3 was really, really evil. <laughs> like, just, wow! Levels of evil. 
But, spoilers for God of War 1 through 3, as we find out, at least some of that evil was specifically because of the opening of Pandora's box at the end of God of War 1. That all of that evil stretched out and infected them and made Zeus and the rest of the Pantheon much, much worse than they otherwise should have been. This leads to an interesting question. Was Odin always evil? Or did Pandora's box affect him as well? Remember, we know there's at least a little bit bleed over between the realms. We know that the gods are aware of each other to some extent or another. What do you guys think? It's entirely possible, of course, that Odin isn't that horrible. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. It's also entirely possible that there's something else totally unrelated that led to Odin being terrible. He could also just be terrible on his own right. That is entirely possible. I just thought it was an interesting connection, because if Odin is just terrible, which is what I personally think, by the way, then that means Zeus was made terrible, but Odin is terrible. An interesting way to escalate things as the series goes. Anywho, that brings me to uh, Arteus, or Atreus, wow, Atreus becoming sick. This is probably one of the best moments, a series of moments, actually, in the entire game, because this is officially when Kratos doesn't have anyone to present for anymore. Let me explain what I mean by that a little bit. Kratos is distant, cold, and kind of abrasive. But he is that way around other people, and Atreus has been with us the entire journey, so he has not been alone the entire journey through the game to date. We have seen little tidbits here and there that show how much Kratos cares and how much Kratos feels, but he has trouble expressing that, have trouble showcasing that. When he takes in Atreus, and again, I mentioned the whole, oh God, what do I do, what do I do? He takes Atreus to Freya, spoiler, and says, please, God, please help take care of her. What, what can I go do to fix this? And, you know, ends up going to Helheim as a consequence. For that and the next several sections of the game, he is now alone. His entire body language changes. Everything about his presentation changes. He doesn't have to keep up that wall anymore. And he doesn't. This is the beginning of Kratos' arc. Now, I kind of said I'd talk about that later. This is probably a good time as I need to talk about it. See, the thing is, Kratos obviously undergoes character growth. That's a duh. But as weird as this may sound, I feel like growth isn't quite the right way to put that. It is correct. It is an accurate statement. But in this case, I feel, I feel a more invocative statement would be that Kratos under, undergoes character unveiling. That we get to see more of who and what Kratos is over the course of the game. What he really is. Now, that's not just because of him changing, you know, for us, for the viewpoint, but because of how he starts to view the characters differently. Because Kratos starts to portray himself and slowly remove the veils and then remove the walls to other characters in character as he's going throughout the game. It takes him until after the final boss before he finally admits that he killed Zeus to Atreus. That's how far th that veil has to be pulled down because he's pulled it up so hard and so far in order to defend, to, to deal with everything that he went through in one through three. And can you blame him? I mean, yes, we can blame him. He was, he was a horrible person in 1 through 3. But that's the point. We must be better. So, Kratos um, flips out a little bit and has to go and try and deal with this whole situation. Ends up going to Helheim, which is awesome. Um, <laughs> I, I love the wind thing. I love the puzzle design. Again, I'm kind of skimming over some of the specific details. This is a rumination, not a, not a lore room. And then, 
Well, I haven't really talked about Freya yet, have I? Now, obviously, I had no idea who she was when I was first playing. I didn't know Norse mythology that well. I still don't, to be completely blunt. I know more of it from this game than I did from any actual studies, because I've never actually dug into it. I bring that up, though, because Freya is probably one of the most interesting characters in this work. She obviously obviously serves as the surrogate mother character, not just to Baldur, but to Atreus, and someone who can then serve as a way to, for lack of a better way, to, better way to put this, to help characterize and express other characters. We get to learn a lot about other characters, Mimir, Atreus, and Kratos, thanks to her. But she is obviously her own individual character, and one of the things I find most interesting about her is she ends up coming across as the most alien because she is the most human. Virtually every other character we encounter is someone who is a dwarf or a god or a head or a giant snake thing, you know. A lot of different characters. And they don't really act all that human. They act supernatural. They act larger than life. Freya acts like a person. She acts like a woman who loves her son. She acts like someone who cares about these two strangers because... You know, they, they, she, she didn't, they didn't realize the damage they were doing. The, the mere fact that they damaged that boar right when they first met her and then immediately did everything they could to try and rectify it, that says a lot. And that it kind of shows why she decided to keep interacting with them over time. She probably regrets that by the end of the game, but whatever. Her humanity is an interesting contrast, too, because it is in many ways what Kratos aspires towards. Someone, and I, I'm, I want to stress I'm using the word humanity in a good term here. Someone who is humble, someone who is uh, empathetic, someone who is sympathetic, someone who cares, someone who tries, someone who loves, and someone who works, someone who will actually do. And if you pay attention, most of the gods of both pantheons don't really fulfill all of those qualities, certainly not the way that they are intended to be fulfilled. Uh, I again point to Magni and Modi as a perfect example, but Baldur himself is an excellent example as well. And so Freya ends up coming across as someone who is a very relatable character, which itself is funny considering... Well, again, we'll get there. So then Atreus basically tells him, you know, you have, you have to tell your son. This leads to what was actually one of my favorite scenes in the game. Atreus is there on the boat, Kratos is pulling... And Atreus says, it's okay, you, you say I'm cursed. I, I, I understand now. I, how many of you know what hope deferred feels like? I imagine a lot of you do, to some extent or another. Let me explain what I mean most distinctly. Everything's bad. Everything's horrible. But wait, wait, things are turning around. Things are getting better. And in that moment, even though you'd built up all those layers of bitterness and cynicism and, and whatever to deal with all the crap, the crap's going away, and you dare to hope, and then it gets worse. It's one of the worst feelings in the world, right there. And it just gets worse, the higher scale of the hope in question. That's what Atreus is going through in that scene. He thought he had finally started really bonding with his father, that he actually cared about him that he actually loved him, that he wanted him to be around, that he was proud of him. But now he finds out he was cursed, that he's nothing, that he thinks so little of him. Then Kratos, who can't, still, still has so, so much difficulty opening up to people, just says, no, 
no, I'm a god, and uh, and so are you. He he says it better than that because the voice acting's amazing. But anyways, so, and then the kid's just like, I, can I can I turn into an animal? Because of course that's exactly what a kid would say. I mean, if I walked up to you know my niece for example, I was like, hey kiddo, listen. I've got some very serious news, okay? This is, and she's like, okay, what? Well, I've taken over the entire universe, and I've now gifted you with the powers of, you know, a Q. So you are now basically a god. And she goes, really? Can I make unicorn? You know, you know that would be, of course, the response from a kid. They're not thinking of it the long term. So it's a really great, really heartwarming moment. It also leads to probably the most debatable aspect of the entire game. Now, I would love to your, know your guys' thoughts on this one. I have heard several guys' thoughts during the during the premiere run. Um, I didn't have a chance to really go through the Reddit threads. This is a long game. I had to kind of plow through this one. But what do you think about Atreus becoming petulant and horrible and evil and then basically 180-ing back? Now, when I played through the first time, I was like, okay, this is some external influence. Like, this is just, wow, this is so mega out of character for him that I'm a little bit shocked. And to be 100% honest, I still have that opinion. I still think there is some kind of external influence involved here. Remember, the entire reason Atreus was sick was because of a metaphysical reason. The fact that Atreus was filled with the hatred from his father, of himself from his father. Now that that's basically been understood, well, he's basically going through a bit of metaphysical whiplash. That's my take on it. I'm not saying that like the 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 uh, Pandora's box is just infesting him or whatever. I'm saying that he is literally experiencing metaphysical whiplash and going way over here before he balances out more. That's my take on it. That being said, I can see another take on it because if you pay attention, and Lord knows I was the second time through, especially Kratos still doesn't really open up to him. Still doesn't really embrace him the way he should, and he certainly doesn't teach him all of the things he means. The most significant thing of all, and I, I can't believe I didn't catch this the first time around, is he tells him, you must be better than me. Now, I've already said that line, and I'll be saying it at least one more time in this rumination, because it's basically the arc words of this game. We must be better. So he tells him that, but he doesn't explain what that means, because what Kratos means is, we need to be better people. More humble, more kind, more empathetic, more, you know. But he doesn't tell Atreus that. And so Atreus is like, okay... I need to be even better than Dad. And so he's a, you know, he kind of goes a little bloodthirsty, a little rude, a little horrible. Let's it go to his head in a really bad way. Oh, also, I know that I, I can just hear the defense. Yes, I know he's a kid. I don't care. <laughs> then everything goes to hell. And I've never meant that more literally because we end up in Helheim. And Kratos just slams down on him. But before I go forward, I want to mention something that I loved. The fact that while Atreus is letting this go to his head, or whatever the hell's actually happening, Atreus is non-controllable. Like this whole gameplay, you had him as your second party member, basically, on the controls. But he stops responding to that. He stops paying attention to your orders. <laughs> then we go to Helheim, and then he stops doing anything at all, unless you hit the button. Now, if you've been paying attention, up until this event, he, he will do stuff on his own and also respond to orders. And this is how the game ends as well. But f I, I love this kind of gameplay and story integration. That because of the events that have happened, you've basically just lost one of your party members. That you have to... Because now, again, either because of the metaphysical whiplash 
or because of the fact that, you know, he let it all, you know, I've got to be better and had no idea. And then his dad just slams down on him hard. This, again, continues the emotional whiplash I was talking about earlier. Oh, father doesn't love me. Wait, father might love me. No, he hates me. I'm cursed. Wait, I'm a god? Wait, why is father so upset? You know. <laughs> Atreus's journal. By the way, I was reading the Atreus's journal a lot more this time through because I read very, very quickly. I didn't want to do that on stream because reading out loud is a lot slower than how I can read with just my eyes. He says it so perfectly. I've screwed everything up. I, I've, I've messed up everything. And you could tell that Atreus is just really broken up about all of this. So then we go through Helheim, which is a fun little sequence. And, um, well, that leads to probably one of the more interesting aspects of the game. Now, I've kind of skipped over this, but I wanted to talk about this here, because I feel like this is the best time to talk about that. In Helheim, well, we get visions of Zeus. Now, by this point, we've already had visions of Athena. Question. We know that Zeus in Helheim is just a memory. It's a fragment. It's just a bit of the past. The same way we could see Baldur's past while in Helheim. It's part of Helheim's curse. But earlier, when we go to retrieve the, the Blades of Chaos, Athena shows up. Twice, actually. Do you think it was actually her, actually there, or do you think that was just an echo of Kratos' own guilt? Now, for the record, put me firmly in the that was actually her camp. I absolutely think that was really Athena. That she, at this point, remember, she's basically the god of the Greek pantheon, whether it's a different plane or a different physical location or whatever. And being understanding and knowing what's going to happen would probably draw her attention. And you can't tell me that she hasn't been keeping some kind of eye on Kratos this entire time. Seeing this, of course she'd get involved. My favorite part, though, and I forget the exact wording. I didn't. I literally didn't have room on my page here to, to, to write it out, but you're an animal. You're nothing but cruelty and rage, and all you do is destroy everything around you. And Kratos' response is, I know. Then he gets the Blades of Chaos and goes all awesome mode. But I mention that because then we see the Zeus thing down in Helheim. And it's very, very clear that he is shaken by that. Which is interesting in its own right, because let's be honest, Zeus deserved to die! <laughs> like I said, monstrously horrible, although externally influenced. But as a consequence, the fact that Kratos regrets that at all, I think says something about Kratos and where he's coming from. Not too long after this, we have a sequence where Brock and Sindri kind of reunite, which is awesome and wonderful, and I'm pretty sure I gave a story post just for that sequence because it was great. And of course, now we can get the best of upgrades because now they're together. This is a good time to mention the Valkyrie fights because this is when I would have gone and done all of them if I had the time to. I want to mention the Valkyrie fights in particular because while this whole game is good, the Valkyrie fights are excellent. That's the stuff that was really the best. Those are the fights that were fun, interesting, challenging, and rewarding. I loved doing those fights, and I really wish I had time to do all of them. Like, if I ever get a chance to... Shoot, I don't know, if I ever win the lottery or whatever, on the, on the huge list of things I'd like to do in my spare time is go finish all of the Valkyrie fights in God of War 4 because they were a lot of fun. I'm curious if there's any actual relation between Freya and the Valkyrie, though. 
because it's implied there, especially by some of the things that Mimir says. Anyways. So, let's talk about Balder. Do you think Balder was always a terrible person? Remember, we have a bit of perspective on that thanks to Magni and Modi. Again, they are just an incredibly useful narrative tool. Because we get to see just how horrible, that the, the basically, that the Odin pantheon can be. And they're the only ones we really interact with. The only other one we interact with, Freya, is a victim of them. Or I guess you could say Mimir, who is a victim of them. Or the giants, who are victims of them. You kind of get the point. And so as a consequence, do you think Baldur was always a terrible person? Or do you think he just descended to that? Because, well, to be 100% honest, what happened to Baldur was kind of horrible. The inability to feel anything for a century? Yeah, that would drive you absolutely insane. Even a god. Remember, most of the gods in this setting, uh, not just the Norse thing, but the setting as an aggregate, are still people. They're just people at a higher tier. You know, very Faerunian kind of a thing. So, <laughs> it's no doubt that by this point in time, Baldur is just gone. That he is so far gone that there's no accepting him. In fact, he is so far gone that we actually, even after we beat the final boss, he is still totally willing to murder his mother in cold blood with his bare hands Basically, just because. Now, before we move any further, I want to I want to toss an idea that came to mind as I was going through this. Oh, I forgot to talk about Nif Nifelheim and uh, Muspelheim. They're both great. <laughs> Optional stuff. I actually really liked the mist dungeons. I liked the whole idea of collecting mist and buying upgrades. It was just a great mechanic and a great way to add some side content. I enjoyed it. Moving on. Do you think the reason Baldur is so horrible is because of Odin? Hear me out. To be more specific by what I mean by that, there's a concept, this is true in real life as much as it is in fiction, where someone has gone through some crap. They have gone through some kind of hell. In Baldur's specific case, it's the curse, the fact that he was unable to feel. Now, having stated that, obviously that's some crap, and that does cause him some significant issues. But do you think... Well, okay, rewind. A person going through that, if someone embraces them, accepts them, treats them as beloved, as part of the family, as someone to be taken care of and suckered, usually those people can get through those hells. I should know. I've been one of those people. So, having stated that, the other thing can happen, too, where they are pushed away or mistreated or looked down upon. They are not embraced, and as such, they don't grow and develop and become better. They get worse. Then there's actually a third category here, which is even worse, where someone actively misuses and abuses the person in question, basically for their own profit and, and benefit, which then makes them much, 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 much worse. What I'm trying to say here is it's entirely possible that Odin saw Baldur and was like, ooh, that's a new toy, and used him as a tool for a century in order to accomplish what he couldn't otherwise do. And thus, through that kind of misuse and abuse, Baldur got even worse than he already would have, thanks to the sanity slippage. What do you guys think? As ever, I would like to hear your guys' thoughts on this one. So then we have the, the final fight with Baldur, which is really awesome. It's, I mean, God of War has never exactly been bad about its fat last fights, although I never cared for the, uh, the very, very, very final fight with Zeus in God of War 2. The one where it's all just, uh, I can't think of what they're called all of a sudden. Uh, QTEs, quick time events. But 
In general, final fights tend to be pretty awesome, and this is no sl slouch. Which is funny, though, because rather than fighting Ares in, in the giant bay, or rather than fighting Zeus himself, or rather than fighting Zeus himself while fighting Gaia, here we're fighting Balder, who is just a dude, but also can empower himself with either fire or frost, which is perfectly in keeping with the overall tones of the game, and our own abilities, since we already have the fire blades of Chaos and the frost axe. Um... <laughs> but anyways, and we've also got the giant which we have to deal with because Freya desperately wants us to stop fighting because <sighs> because she's blind. I'm just going to say that as bluntly as I can. Look, I like Freya, and I sympathize with her a lot, but Baldur tried to murder her with his bare hands, even after the curse had been lifted, after she constantly says, I'm sorry, and I love you, and I'm sorry, and I love you, and I just did this for you. No, she's blind. Anyways... We'll get to that in just a second. So we go through this whole wonderful, awesome fight. And, of course, the mistletoe ends up breaking the curse. Now, I didn't know about the mistletoe thing with Baldur. I was unaware of this connection to that. Someone in chat told me about it when we were going through the premiere run. But the way that setup is beautiful, because there was the mistletoe arrows, and only a little bit was left, so we used that to mend the bag. And It's such a tiny moment, but it actually sets up this finale because it means they can break the curse and permanently kill Baldur. We can actually have a proper last boss fight. I also love the bit where they're they're starting to really have issues, especially with the giant. And uh, Atreus is like, I got an idea. And Jormungandr just shows up out of nowhere and goes, smashes into the other guy and just takes him out full tilt. I liked Jormungandr in this game, by the way. Although we have to talk about him in a second, too. I hope I'm pronouncing that even close to correct. I'm really bad with Norse pronunciations. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it on purpose. I, I'm actually making the effort, I swear. My mouth just doesn't work that way, I guess. Anyways. Then we end up killing, basically defeating Baldur like Zeus. Just beating the ever-living crap out of him as he's you know, pinned under us. That leads to the finale. And the finale, as I just mentioned, Baldur, I've said this already twice, tries to kill his freaking mother with his bare hands. Mimir says this outright in character, and I agree completely. The world needs Freya. The world does not need Baldur. In, in, in a purely pragmatic, macroscopic choice, killing Baldur, even though it means making an enemy of Freya, is the correct choice. Now, you could argue that there's a bit of cold calculus in that, because one of the arguments that we leveled is that Freya willingly gave her life. But the only way that would even equal out is that we accept her decision to die... And then we kill Baldur. So now the world is absent both. Because a world with Baldur without Freya is much, much worse. I'm sorry, but from every perspective, killing Baldur was the correct choice. The only question was when to do it. And I understand Freya's hatred and rage towards the end. And I want to stress that word, rage. I usually define rage and fury as different. Because fury, in my opinion, is something that's focused. I am furious at you. Rage is just just a volcano, right? And everything she says and everything she does there makes it clear that she is not thinking straight at all. In fact, I was actually expecting her to attack us on the, on the spot, pacifism curse aside. But instead, she just can't deal with this and just kind of walks off. And now she's the enemy. Wonderful. And what's funny is she will think that despite everything, purely because of the fact that we killed her son, who was killing her? Again, I sympathize with her, and I like her as a character, but I really don't hope we don't have to kill her in a future game, because I, I like her, damn it. Uh, 
But um, what I want to talk about more about that scene in particular, we must be better than this. The cycle ends here. Snap. And then Freya, of course, livid at him, says the same thing that Athena said to him. You're nothing but an animal. You're nothing but a monster. And Kratos' response? Then you do not know me very well. This is why I say what Kratos has gone through isn't quite character growth. Because while he has changed and moved forward, it's more about him accepting who he really is than actively changing who he really is. Kratos admitting that he has, has moved on. That he still has that guilt, that he still has that ash, that he is still carrying that weight, but that he is not the same person who tore apart the Greek world all those years ago. So, he goes to his son and he tells him, yeah, I, I killed Zeus. I killed my dad. He deserved it, but he doesn't say that part. And then Atreus is, of course, horribly hurt by all this, and we finally see the conclusion of the revelation that he is a god. Is this what being a god means? And Kratos says, no, we must be better. And now we understand, and he enunciates this and, and explains this to his son, this is what I mean by we must be better. We must be better people, not better warriors, not better combatants, not grandiose and glorious. No, 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 we have to be better people. So, oh yeah, quick aside. The snow starts after Baldur dies. Ragnarok. Ragnarok early. That's interesting. That shouldn't work that way. And several people in character, including Mimir, are like, uh, not sure what to do about that. This is when we find out that Bal uh, Baldur, wow. This is when we find out that Atreus is Loki. Now... That was spoiled for me by a jackass during the stream. But regardless of commenting on that, all I want to say about that is that reveal is actually not only interesting, but far more interesting knowing everything that I do now. Everything about the way that he works and the way he functions and the things that are attached to him in typical mythos. Other than that, it's mostly just like, okay. And of course, we see some visions of the future which are very vague on purpose. Foreshadowing, foreshadowing. I could talk about those, but I don't actually think I want to, as weird as that sounds, because mostly at this point I just think that what they're setting up for is, is the Battle of Ragnarok, that God of War 5 will be God of War 5 colon Ragnarok. And I'm not sure how Kratos is going to play into that. Remember, Kratos literally doesn't fit into this equation. He shouldn't fit. He's not from around here. But he has the power to make changes around here, and he already has. Baldur, Ragnarok, move forward. That being said, do you think... I said I'd talk about Jormungandr. Do you think there's actually time travel involved in that? All i got to say is, I hope not. Like, we've already had time travel in the God of War series, so it's not like there's not precedence for that. In fact, it was even in my favorite game in the series, too. Well, second favorite. Four has overtaken it. But, you know, my old favorite game in the series, too. But at the same time, I feel like it's an unnecessary addition. Especially since it doesn't really serve to do anything other than to kind of explain why Jormungandr is here, rather than in the future when Ragnarok is happening and all that doom is happening. It does unfortunately line up very well. We know, we find, know that he just kind of appeared one day. We know that the battle was said to be so devastating it could have sent him back, and the world tree kind of split, and blah 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 blah. Ultimately, I'm not sure what to say about that, except that I am very much looking forward to God of War 5. 
the battle for Thor. I hope you guys have enjoyed my thoughts and rumination on this excellent, excellent game. And I'll see you guys next time.